Ho, ho, ho. Welcome to Twill, the week in health law, the podcast of record for the discussion of health law and policy. We're recording this episode on December 12th, 2018. I'm Nicholas Terry, a professor of law at Indiana University in Indianapolis. Welcome to our special holiday show where we celebrate who's been naughty or nice in 2018. So let's meet those who've been cruelly torn away from their eggnog to work in Bad Santa's workshop today. Hi, Nick. This is Zach Buck. I'm an associate professor at the University of Tennessee, where I teach the health law classes and my scholarship focuses on issues in healthcare finance. Hi, this is Elizabeth Weeks. I'm a professor and associate dean at the University of Georgia School of Law, where I teach torts and uh, myriad health law classes. And I'm currently working on opioids and celebrating the publication of my new book from Cambridge University Press on healthism or health status discrimination in the law. And this is Aaron Fusay-Brown. I'm at Georgia State University College of Law. And like Elizabeth and Zach, I teach in the health law program. I also teach administrative law, and I do research on all things to do with health care costs, prices, regulation, competition, um, and also ERISA. So that's my claim to fame. Wonderful. Welcome, you all. So first off, Zach, who has been naughty and deserves only cold? All right, Nick. I have a couple of candidates for you. My first naughty of the year goes to the Trump administration. Where else would we start? Uh, for its continued assault on the Affordable Care Act. Uh, perhaps no one embodies these policy cha- changes more so than Seema Verma, administrator of the CMS, who just last month noted, according to the New York Times, that it was a mistake to federalize so much of health care policy under the ACA. Uh, Verma is a pining on settle- settled federal law, but her statement gives us insight into how she views the ACA and her policy goals, and they match those of the administration. Uh, in 2018, those inc- included encouraging more people to purchase health insurance from outside the ACA exchanges. Uh, Two policy moves, one making short-term health insurance plans more available and association health plans, and two, allowing states to use the waiver process to access federal funds to award premium subsidies to customers who purchased insurance outside of the ACA exchanges are likely to damage the ACA individual marketplace over the long run. First, during the summer, the Trump administration published rules that made short-term health insurance plans more available by eliminating their stopgap posture, redefining a short term as renewable for up, to, for, for up to three years. Similarly, the Trump administration widened the availability of so-called association health plans, which are also expected to grow in popularity. They also are not subject to all of the ACA's regulatory requirements, and they're cheaper. They're offered off of ACA exchanges and don't have to provide comprehensive coverage offered by plans uh, sold on the exchanges. For example, most don't cover substance abuse treatment, prescription drugs, or maternity care. They also may apply limits to the care covered by plans. Uh, and then in November, the Trump administration and HHS Secretary Alex Azar loosened, uh, announced a loosening of the standards for state innovation waivers uh, under 1332 of the ACA, noting a policy change that states could use the waiver process to receive federal funds that they could use to provide premium subsidies to beneficiaries who purchase non-compliant ACA plans. This would deal yet another blow to the individual exchanges as one of the only policy structures that remains to incentivize beneficiaries to stay on the market would evaporate. With more short-term plans and association health plans, no individual mandate and premium assistance tax credits available to anyone who purchases insurance, both on and off the exchanges, the ACA's tools most focused on on ensuring robust enrollment on the exchanges have been removed and likely would rattle markets and bleed more enrollment from the the ACA marketplaces. My second submission for a naughty candidate actually goes to two U.S. Circuit Courts of Appeal. First, uh, the U.S. Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals for its decision in Association for Accessible Medicines versus Frosh, a three-judge panel in April decided 
decided uh, that the Maryland's anti-price gouging statute for generic or off-patent drugs, HB 631, was unconstitutional. Uh, Writing for the two-judge majority, Judge Stephanie Thacker found that the law violated the Dormant Commerce Clause because the law applied to sales that occurred outside of the state. Specifically, the court found that Maryland's law, which was limited to off-patent or generic drugs that were, quote, made available for sale in Maryland, did not appropriately limit its ambit to sales that took place within the state. The court found that these upstream sales would, quote, occur almost exclusively outside Maryland. According to the court, controlling the prices that occurred outside of the state violated extraterritoriality principles of the Dormant Commerce Clause because it sought to apply Maryland law outside of the state, an effort to, quote, dictate the price that may be charged elsewhere for for a good. Batting down Maryland's arguments, the court found that the law caused more than just an upstream pricing impact, but a price control. Uh, Judge James Wynn, who wrote in dissent, disagreed. He said that the Maryland law did not implicate the concerns underlying the Dormant Commerce Clause and did not discriminate against interstate commerce. And he said that the extraterritoriality doctrine should not have been used to invalidate a state statute regulating uh, products ultimately sold within the state's borders. The court denied a petition for rehearing on Bonk in July, and Maryland's attorney, Frosch, filed cert with the Supreme Court in late October. That's the U.S. Supreme Court. Uh, Second, I submit the 11th Circuit, not for a decision it made, but for a decision it still has not yet made. Uh, We continue to wait for a resolution of the U.S. versus the Sarah Care case pending in front of the 11th Circuit. In short, the Northern District of Alabama made waves in early 2016 when a False Claims Act action against a Sarah Care hospice was dismissed after the court noted that a clinical disagreement could not constitute falsity under the False Claims Act. The importance of this decision cannot be overstated. If a finding of clinical disagreement, a mere difference of opinion between clinical experts over appropriate care, cannot provide the basis for an FCA action, then the FCA's applicability to a whole host of cases is severely severely curtailed. We continue to wait on the 11th Circuit for a decision. Uh, Oral arguments were heard in March of 2017. We thought we'd have a decision by now, but it looks like we'll be waiting into the new year. Oh, fine nominations all. We're going to need a lot of coal, aren't we? Well, I won't speak for as long because Zach took my naughty, uh, one of my naughty candidates, but uh, I will give another example of how the Trump administration has been naughty in 2018. Um, But it's not just the Trump administration, it's in combination with some states, uh, particularly the states that have applied for and gotten approved uh, Medicaid work requirement. Um, So in in 2018, we saw many states uh, put in place uh, efforts to obtain Medicaid waivers to allow their Medicaid population to have to apply for uh, approval to receive their Medicaid coverage on the basis of satisfying certain work requirements, in particular Arkansas. And so the data are just rolling in now um, in the past couple months. And for example, in Arkansas, over 12,000 people have lost their Medicaid coverage for non-compliance with the work requirements. So even though, you know, 80% of people might be exempt from, of of Medicaid eligible people might be exempt from having to, uh, you know, comply with the Medicaid work requirement, it is onerous enough that people, it has resulted in a significant number of people being locked out of their coverage um, under Medicaid. And so it is having, you know, untoward public health effects in terms of coverage. I'm sure the hospitals in those states are also seeing uh, a reduction in their in their reimbursements, even though Medicaid's not a great payer, it's a much better payer than, um, than no payer at all. And so the Medicaid work requirement is a, you know, even while it's being challenged as illegal under the Medicaid statute, it is, you know, we're seeing these experiments roll forward. 
and this is an example of how we're seeing the experiment roll forward and some of the initial data coming in is looking pretty bleak in that Medicaid work requirements are really effective ways of cutting the roles of Medicaid um, and not really cost-saving me measures. And it's not a way to encourage people to work or it's really just having an effect of stripping coverage from a population who, uh, you know, can't otherwise afford health care coverage. So that's my candidate for naughty. It's a combination of the federal government and the states that have applied for and implemented work requirements. Uh, another not naughty candidate for me, um, I'm going to move from the administration to some private actors. So in particular, I'm watching a case that is in the news very recently, a, an antitrust case uh, against a bunch of generic drug manufacturers accused of price fixing. Um, so one of the things that we think about in when we talk about high prescription drug prices is the common refrain is that generics are going to come in and save the day. So once um, prescription drugs are are free to have generic competition, um, that, that those generic competition uh, entry will reduce prices, increase the competition in the marketplace, and everything will, and our drug pricing problem will go away. Well, as it turns out, generic drug manufacturers, um, at least in the allegations in the antitrust case, have been engaging as one of the largest cartels in American history, really d segmenting the market amongst themselves and engaging in price fixing, resulting in, um, you know, very high prices for things, you know, we've seen in the news over the years, like EpiPen um, skyrocketing. Uh, we see insulin, you know, is, is going up in price, you know, dramatically, even though these are all um, products that have, uh, that are, you know, that there are now generic alternatives available. And so generic drug manufacturers, um, that is one thing that we want to watch carefully, because, again, competition really only can solve the drug pricing problem if the competition is, in fact, competitive and not um, and not anti-competitive. Um, in a similar vein, the conglomerates in healthcare are not limited to the drug industry. I think another bad actor, or at least one that's an alleged bad actor, are the healthcare conglomerates in the provider space. Uh, so, for example, Sutter Health in, in the Bay Area is, you know, being sued by the Attorney General in California. And the allegations there, again, are once you get big, you tend to abuse your market power. And so Sutter Health has been accused of, you know, raising its out-of-network prices to punitively high levels, restricting their health care um, health plan terms, and being, you know, restricting the ability of health plans to offer lower-cost competitive plans that don't include the Sutter as, you know, the default provider, and offering, you know, these lower-cost options and gag clauses to reduce price transparency and the like. So there's a lot of ind indication that the healthcare industry is getting more consolidated. We had CVS and Aetna, um, its merger being a sort of more or less green-lighted this year. And so we're seeing more consolidation, more novel forms of consolidation, more conglomerates being formed. And what we're seeing is that once these um, once these anti-competitive arrangements amass, then they're very, very hard to hard to control. And competition really isn't doing the trick to control costs. So those are my naughty candidates. I don't know if the, the first item that Aaron demurred on was 1332 waivers, but that's on my list too. Um, and if it was in fact on Aaron's list as well as Zach's and mine, I'm actually somewhat comforted by that. And I am going to talk a little bit more about 1332 waivers. And in adding it to my list, I was thinking this is one of these below the radar screen issues that's really significant under the ACA and, and warrants um, discussion. But if it's on all three of our lists, that, that gives me some comfort that we're tracking the same sorts of concerns. So the issue here with the administration's 
October guidance on the state innovation waivers is is really a, a um, ongoing effort to dismantle the ACA um, in a strategy of a death by a thousand cuts. So the 1332 waivers do allow states to waive various federal private market protections that are part of the Affordable Care Act, including the precious metal tiers and the minimum actuarial value that goes along with those. Other requirements for qualified health plans, including the essential health benefits, cost sharing limits, um, a sub- a procedural requirements such as having a website or a navigator and call centers, as well as premium tax credits and the cost sharing reduction payments. Um, additionally, states may waiver, waive the um, employer responsibility payments and um, by listed in the statute, the individual mandate, of course, that's already been taken away by federal law. What's changed and what the, the new policy changed is not the substance of the waiver possibility and, and the parts of the ACA that can be waived by states, but is essentially, I think Zach called it um, a loosening, whereas I might call it at least a dilution, if not an evisceration of the four statutory guardrails that exist within this waiver structure. And those are comparability, affordability, comprehensiveness, and deficit neutrality. Well, under the October guidance, the deficit neutrality requirement remains, but the others are largely loosened um, and largely treated as in the disjunctive rather than the conjunctive, which is a rather strained reading of the statutory language. The administration also indicated that there are new um, factors that will weigh favorably in considering whether a state waiver would be granted, and those factors tend towards promoting competition and, and more market-driven proposals, eliminating state requirements that limit consumer choice, um, as Zach mentioned, um, pro-association health, health plans and shorter-term plans, which would not have the requirements of minimum essential coverage that's currently um, under the Affordable Care Act. So the upshot is that the effect, if states take up this opportunity to um, apply for waivers and and have the possibility of receiving them under looser standards, are that there will likely be more people um, who have less comprehensive coverage than they currently do, more people who are exposed to higher cost sharing and out-of-pocket costs, more exposure in terms of coverage lost and out-of-coverage costs for vulnerable populations, and that's a result of how the guide interprets the comparability and affordability guide uh, guardrails on a on an aggregate basis rather than on an individual population basis. And more coverage options that actually reinstitute some core pieces of the Affordable Care Act, some core achievements in terms of prohibiting pre-existing condition exclusions and prohibiting health status underwriting. Those could come back under state law, under association health, health plans and shorter term health plans. So really, what this policy represents, um, two broad themes that we've seen throughout um, health reform, one of which I've been writing about since 2008, 2009, and in the lead up to the Affordable Care Act's enactment, which is this federalism tension in health health care and health insurance regulation. One of the major achievements of the Affordable Care Act in the private market was setting nationwide standards and definitions of what essential health coverage means. We we certainly didn't get a, 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 a... 
a federal right to health care, but we got a federal definition about what health insurance means in order to be um, substantive and, and, and meaningful for those who carry it. All of this, of course, continually has been met with resistance by states. Um, the ACA and Obamacare is seen as a, a federal power gl- grab and um, as something that delves too deeply into territory that states know better, regulation of markets and regulation of insurance. Um, so it's the same theme, but a different incarnation via this executive action, which is another um, prevailing theme in health reform um, debates, which is the the role of the executive in um, in in tearing down this um, um, congressional achievement of the Affordable Care Act. So this October guidance on the 1332 waivers, um, it was issued as guidance. It did not go through formal notice and comment rulemaking, which then suggests that, at least in the administration's view, what they're doing is merely providing interpretation of the statute, not legislative changes to the statute or or, um, substantive changes. But that interpretation is highly questionable, given the the significance and and the substantive changes that are affected by this issuance. And that opens the possibility for new litigation, a procedural challenge to the October guidance um, in in that it was enacted without um, proper procedures. So, of course, the Trump administration is certainly not the first to do by executive order what it couldn't get done through partisan um, politics. Um, However, I think we um, have probably observed in other uh, podcasts and other contexts that um, this administration has taken that um, to a new level. So setting aside the 1332 issue, which uh, has already been covered, but I did want to speak about a little bit more, I would add to my um, list um, opioids manufacturers. I mentioned in the introduction that that, that's a current research um, interest of mine, and it certainly is to Professor Terry as well. And so um, two um, notable items there within the landscape of the the opioid epidemic. One is the November 18 um, issuance by Acel RX of a new opioid, which is 10 times stronger than fentanyl, which currently exists, um, seems like an odd choice amid um, a nationwide epidemic about concerns about opioids and increased fentanyl use and and the dangers that go along with these products to issue another one that is um, so significantly stronger than anything on the market already. And then secondly, in a a stroke of irony, perhaps, in um, September, Purdue Pharma, one of the biggest names in the opioid um, crisis and opioid litigation um, took a different tack on the market by issuing um, a a new anti-addiction drug, a fast-acting form of uh, buprenorphine um, in in a waiver form. And so if you can get them coming, you can also get them coming back. It seems that Purdue is is attempting to profit both on the the front end and on the recovery end of this crisis. So I would add the opioids um, pharmaceutical manufacturers to my naughty list. All right. Well, uh, if we're all going to pile on, I suppose I'll add my voice here. For me, uh, sabotage is a very strong charge, um, and CMS likes to point out uh, its benign motives, such as increasing consumer choice. But most of its actions 
elections and those of other parts of the administration really just highlight its frustration at failing to destroy President Obama's signature legislation. Indeed, we've seen the sabotage label used openly now in court filings. From its continued refusal to defend the law of the land, as seen in the Texas case, to its flagrant disregard of 1115 and now 1332 guardrails, this is a healthcare administration that seems intent on reducing access to good, affordable health care. Nowhere is the cynicism more obvious than in the moves designed to increase the chances of a marketplace death spiral. Short-term, limited-duration insurance plans and association health plans are just plain bad ideas. We shouldn't be selling skinny, skimpy junk plans for any reason, and certainly not when their real purpose is to undermine the exchanges. Like Professor Leonard, I would also save a big bag of coal for the drug manufacturers involved in the opioid overdose epidemic. I take a slightly different track. Uh, My first uh, box of coal goes to the defendants who supplied the prescription opioid for not settling the multi-district MDL suit in Cleveland, and also for their own lawsuits pushing back against, for example, the, the new New York tax on their activities. Ideas designed to try and free up money to treat the victims of opioid use disorder. And a particularly large box of coal for the manufacturers of the overdose antidote naloxone for price gouging. Alright, so enough of the depressing narrative. Who or what was nice and deserves plenty of fine artisanal candy? Zach? Alright, so I'm going to start with my nice uh, section in uh, recognizing an actual co-guest related to one of my uh, naughty statements, and that would be Aaron Fusey Brown, whose piece uh, resurrecting healthcare reg- uh, rate regulation was citing, cited approvingly by James Wynn in the Fourth Circuit decision that I mentioned earlier, uh, highlighting the importance of Maryland's anti-gouging law. So I did want to give her a shout out on that. My my next submission uh, for a nice this year focuses on the idea of direct democracy in health policy. Uh, direct democracy, particularly ballot initiatives, resulted in an expanding me- uh, population for Medicaid coverage to the tune of about 300,000 people and legalized marijuana, uh, of medical marijuana, uh, in an additional two states in November. Uh, so first on Medicaid expansion, uh, in Idaho, Medicaid expansion passed uh, 61 to 39 percent following years of hostility to expansion from the state legislature. Uh, Governor Butch Otter, a Republican, supported the measure. And in Idaho, this will likely mean that about 70,000 individuals will gain insurance, with the uninsurance rate dropping from nearly 15 percent in Idaho to below 10 percent. Similarly, by a vote of 54 to 46 percent, Nebraska voters approved Initiative 427 just last month, which expanded its Medicaid program under the ACA for about 45,000 more state residents, dropping its uninsurance rate below 10 percent. And in Utah, voters elected to expand Medicaid by a vote of 53 to 47 percent and paid for it uh, by uh, increasing state sales tax uh, to pay for the expansion. Uh, The Utah expansion is expected to cover about 150 thousand more uh, Utahns under uh, under the expansion plan. Uh, relatedly, Maine will be moving forward finally with Medicaid expansion under government uh, Governor-elect Janet Mills after years of intransigence from Governor Paul LePage, who refused to expand Medicaid following uh, voter approval. Uh, that takes uh, the number of states that have uh, expanded Medicaid uh, to 36. Now, interestingly, Montana's ballot initiative to continue to fund Montana's uh, Medicaid expansion beyond 2019 failed uh, 
53 to 47, it would have applied additional tax on cigarettes and other tobacco products uh, to continue to fund the expansion, but a legislative solution is being sought in that state to continue expansion beyond 2019. Uh, The second area of direct democracy that I mentioned above uh, is in the area of the legalization of medical marijuana. In Utah, medical marijuana was legalized 53 to 47, and in Missouri, it was legalized with 66% of the vote. Uh, These examples show the increasing power and utilization of ballot initiatives uh, for major health policy decisions uh, and state uh, decisions uh, in the health policy space. Um, And I guess in an effort to be somewhat charitable this time of year, I think it's important to talk about drug pricing, uh, as well as some other changes that have been floated to the fraud and abuse laws. Uh, This is obviously a tepid nice, um, but I do appreciate the statements regarding drug policy from Alex Azar as a welcome change from HHS Secretary Tom Price. Uh, Although at this point, nothing is certain. Azar has been in the news uh, throughout 2018 talking about increased transparency, changing rebate structures, other structural changes to Medicare, including giving Part D more discretion to negotiate better prices, and even linking Part B drugs to some international index. Uh, Of course, it's not clear whether any of these policy proposals have a realistic shot of implementation. Price transparency laws, including a proposal that commercial advertisements include pricing information, carry with them some communicative value, but they have not been proven to substantially lessen or even slow uh, rising drug costs. Um, But we do have other examples of the administration looking at uh, trying to make changes. Most recently in August, uh, uh, Deputy HHS Secretary Eric Hargan made news when he went public discussing a request for information that sought comments on modifying the the anti-kickback statute uh, in an effort to allow, to better allow care coordination and other value-based care initiatives by adding, potentially adding, additional safe harbors to the anti-kickback statute to try to be more cognizant of the integration we're continuing to see in the new uh, value-based era. So I wanted to recognize those efforts. Finally, I would be remiss if I didn't mention state pricing or state drug pricing efforts, which we saw a ton of activity in this space. There were transparency laws passed across the country, drug pricing transparency laws, which took different types of uh, characteristics. In Connecticut and Oregon, for instance, they have now laws on the books that require justification for price increases for state Medicaid programs. Uh, New Jersey uh, debated whether or not it should establish a price gouging statute similar to Maryland. Uh, Vermont passed an importation from Canada, a wholesale importation from Canada law that now must go through administrative uh, requirements. And pharmacy benefit manager laws on the books in Mississippi and Colorado and other states as well. We saw a lot of movement in the state-based drug pricing area that mostly shows states' increased interest in trying to bring about uh, change, real change, in drug pricing. For my nice list, I think uh, I will, again, echo Zach in that I think that the the bookend to the naughty being the federal government, I think a lot of the promise and the hope is coming from states, particularly in this day and age. And not all states, but states are really acting as the engines of innovation and health reform and health policy, and they're doing what they can to resist some of the erosion and undermining of the uh, Affordable Care Act marketplaces that that Elizabeth and Zach have so well described. And so states have not just been sitting idly by and letting their markets fall to pieces. They have been doing, they've been quite active in doing things to shore up their and stabilize their individual insurance markets, um, particularly against association health plans, short-term limited duration health plans. Um, Some states have gone so far as to pass their own individual mandates since the federal individual mandate um, will sort of disappear 
disappear as of as of January 1st. So, for example, states are doing a lot to regulate these um, non-ACA compliant plans using their traditional insurance regulation authority. So, for example, Connecticut has required all insurance products to cover essential health benefits. So replacing sort of that erosion that the, uh, the Affordable Care Act used to provide um, under the old rules. Existing California law already prohibited practices such as allowing short-term plans to be sold as insurance. So there are some limits on the degree to which those types of short-term plans will be available in states like California. Um, so the benefit mandates that are, you know, we see the essential health benefits, the sort of coverage of pre-existing conditions, those are being sort of shored up in, in states using their insurance regulatory authority. So I think that that is one of the big sort of rays of hope is that our federalist system that allows the states to step in when the federal government steps back. I think that we're, is, we're seeing that work fairly well in, in many states, not all states. States, uh, particularly as the Affordable Care Act sort of gets wobbly and the three-legged stool starts to starts to tip over, so states are stepping in and and stabilizing their marketplaces as best as they can. And I think we're we're seeing that reflected in the variability in terms of the stability of the premiums and the availability and the number of insurers participating in those markets um, was actually surprisingly stable for 2018 um, compared to the sort of double-digit increases that we saw in the market places from prior years. Uh, so I think that is one ray of hope. And, and another thing is that the the lapsing of the individual mandate did not cause the stool to fall down entirely, um, nor did the elimination of the cost-sharing reduction payments back in 2017 result in the total collapse. So I think one ray of hope is the degree to which the affordable care marketplaces, though undermined, though wobbly, though shrinking in many ways, they are more robust, more durable than we have had hoped and feared. I think in some ways, the affordable care marketplaces are stronger than we anticipated, partly because of the demand for coverage that does, in fact, cover pre-existing conditions. Um, I share my, you know, my guests, my co-guests concerns about the marketplaces being continually undermined. But I think we have some reasons to be um, a little bit uh, reassured that they are not, they're not going away, they're not collapsing, um, they are relatively stable. And if small steps were taken to reverse some of the undermining that was done, I think we would see uh, that go a long way and states are stepping in to do that. Another way states are uh, stepping into the fray are, are to combat issues that the federal government, and I, I think I'll save this for my secret Santa, but the federal government hasn't quite answered yet. And this is the problem that consumers are facing in terms of their out-of-pocket spending and their out-of-network costs. So we're seeing you know, more and more states step up to provide consumer protections uh, in the form of surprise medical billing laws and protections. And I've been on this show before talking about surprise medical billing laws. So I won't get into the details of what those are, but I will say that the number of states that are taking this on and are interested in expanding protections for out-of-network uh, surprise medical billing, which is usually balanced billing in the emergency room or when you're in a in-network facility and treated by an out-of-network physician, those uh, state efforts are 
taking hold. And I think they're getting a lot of attention due to great reporting. Um, New Jersey passed a very comprehensive law this year, and more states are considering it. There have been a handful of other states. And so I think we're going to continue to see states step in and fill in the gaps where the federal government um, is is floundering or is foundering. And and I think that is one thing to be hopeful for, is that we do have a two-tiered system where we do have some level of regulatory authority in the states, particularly when it comes to health coverage and consumer protections. Again, I think Zach and I, I must be copying off of Zach's notes before the call because I had Medicaid expansion on the November ballot as my NICE as well. Um, So I might just add a couple of notes on that. Um, Certainly the three states that Zach mentioned, Idaho, Nebraska, and Utah that passed uh, ballot measures, those are red states. That's a significant achievement in the the slow, but I would say steady march toward acceptance of um, Medicaid expansion across the country. But two other states are worth noting, um, including my former state of Kansas, as well as Wisconsin, which both elected governors who said that they will push for Medicaid expansion in those states. So those are at least two other states that are um, well positioned, um, subject to their own um, uh, partisan challenges to get Medicaid expansion achieved in the fairly near future. Sadly, um, Georgia, Aaron's in my state and previously Zach's state before he left us for Tennessee, um, did not manage to pass or or to elect a a Democratic governor. Stacey Abrams lost by the thinnest of margins after several days of question about how that election might go. Um, And Abrams would have made Medicaid expansion her top priority, her first initiative in office. Um, Under the current administration, of course, I think that's much less likely and not to um, lean too far back into the naughty realm, um, there is some discussion in Georgia about Medicaid expansion, but it likely will be fairly modest. Um, And one proposal being discussed is a a pilot project with Grady Health System in Atlanta, one of the largest safety net providers, um, which under this pilot project, which would be an 1115 Medicaid waiver, it would essentially draw down federal matching dollars to provide services at pilot sites for currently uninsured Georgians, essentially to the Medicaid expansion population, but a very limited portion of those. Um, So that possibility is out there. And while encouraging as something of, again, a pilot project, my concern is that it it carries the risk of Georgia being able to check off the uh, Medicaid expansion box, but in a very modest way, thereby forestalling broader expansion, which the state really needs to address um, a host of issues, not the least of which is, is rural health care access, another um, area of research interest of mine. Uh, the other guests have covered uh, a number of good items on the federalism point. I'm going to veer off in a totally different direction for my other nice item, which is also an area totally outside of my research interest, but seems like a good Christmas story um, and certainly has been a heartwarming story to me. And so my my nice award would go to the uh, a Brazilian transplant team that successfully transplanted a um, the first uterus um, from a deceased donor that um, was able to um, um, support the birth of a, of a, of a baby. Um, and this uterus, again, there have been previous transplants from um, live donors, but this donor um, had been deprived of oxygen for eight hours and this uterus still was able to be viable. Um, so the Brazilian team managed both the, the organ transplant and anti-rejection drugs, as well as the embryo transfer transplant that ultimately 
um, resulted in this birth. And again, um, it just is a nice, heartwarming Christmas story. And um, it's not an area in which I do research, but it's an area that is um, important to me um, on a personal level. I have a son who is the blessing of a donor egg, and which allows me to retort to my husband when my son is acting up that it's not my genes. Um, but these, the, so these sorts of successes, I think, are very promising and very encouraging, um, albeit uh, surely with a host of um, bioethics concerns that uh, my colleagues such as Michelle Goodwin and Glenn Cohen are, are better versed on. Well, I'm going to give a very short shout out to the fourth estate, a point that I think Frank made on the show one year. But for me, I'm not going to really talk about the mainstream press that obviously has proved its value time and time again over the last two years, but also uh, some of the specialist health policy publications. Uh, one of the ways to attack a democracy is to starve it of accurate independent data. And when you're dealing with decision making uh, in healthcare taken in the absence of or in spite of data, then having good data generated or analyzed outside of the government is particularly valuable. So I want to give a shout out to a whole bunch of publications from Health Affairs to The Times Upshot to Pew to the Center for Budget and Policy Priorities, the Kaiser Family Foundation, and of course, the Commonwealth Fund. Uh, there are lots more of them, uh, and we thank you for your work and keeping us up to date, and giving us some good data to work with as we analyze administration policies. And let's hope next year's House will take a similar tack and re-elevate evidence base to its proper place. All right, to the final round. Who do you hope is your secret Santa? This is going to be weird. I may need some uh, lessons on picking an appropriate secret Santa. Maybe we'll talk about that uh, down the line. But uh, my my secret Santa, I guess I highlighted the notion that this someone might be mysterious and I might want to speak with this person. And so I chose Judge Reed O'Connor uh, of the Northern District of Texas. Uh, he's currently deciding Texas versus U.S., which I think will be the newest threat to the Affordable Care Act. Uh, the petitioners, 20 states, ask for the entire of the ACA to be stricken, arguing that the constitutional hook of the ACA, the t power to tax, has been removed since the repeal of the individual mandate penalty was zeroed out at the end of 2017. Without a tax penalty, the argument asserts there is no constitutional authority remaining for the law. Notably, the DOJ is not defending the ACA in, in court, and states led by California have intervened to argue against the petitioners. Uh, oral arguments were held in September. Petitioners are asking for a preliminary injunction to enjoin the ACA's uh, uh, applicability as potentially as wide as on the nationwide basis. Uh, of importance to the litigation is congressional intent. The states argue that Congress would not have intended that the guaranteed issue provisions, which guaranteed care to beneficiaries with pre-existing conditions, and the community rating requirements under the law can stand absent an individual mandate. With the individual mandate penalty zeroed out, of course, the argument goes Congress would not want the other protections in the ACA, and it must be struck down. Uh, interestingly, though, Congress may have shown a different intent. Uh, when it eliminated the individual mandate penalty by zeroing out that penalty without repealing the guaranteed issue and community rating provisions when it did in late 2017. Uh, Judge O'Connor has wide latitude to determine what the appropriate resolution should be, most prominently, as I mentioned, a nationwide injunction or one that's more geographically limited. A full strike down of the
the entire ACA or striking down just a portion. Uh, I, for one, will anxiously await what he will leave us in our stocking. I'll allow that, Zach, but uh, yeah, before next year, we will have to talk about the distinction between Santa Claus and the Grim Reaper. <laughs> I thought you said someone that you might want to talk to over a drink or something. That qualifies, right? Maybe I'm a little too dark this year. <laughs> You've gone goth on us. Well, so for my secret Santa, um, I think I would pick Maggie Hassan, the senator, the junior senator from New Hampshire. And the reason I would pick her um, is she has a bill that has bipartisan support and, you know, some momentum in the Senate to c- curtail surprise medical bills in in Congress. And so, um, as I alluded to in my nice section, I think that, you know, we have a big problem of consumers are experiencing really increasingly high out-of-pocket costs. And these come from a range of phenomena, including high deductibles, but also surprise medical bills and out-of-network costs that they did not anticipate and really couldn't avoid through no fault of their own. They they incur these costs. Um, And states have been fixing these problems by passing very comprehensive consumer protections uh, state by state have been moving in this direction but states can only go so far because they cannot regulate you know a large part of the privately insured market who are um, em- who are covered by employer-based health care and that's because those are regulated by ERISA and because ERISA preempts state uh, state laws that regulate insurance or regulate anything in the healthcare industry the, the the effect is that we need fe- the federal government to step in to really provide protections to everyone um, when it comes comes to surprise medical bills. And so Maggie Hassan, um, there's been a couple of bills. Uh, she has one. There's another bill by um, by Senators Cassidy and some other colleagues that is that, that has a great deal of attention right now that would really create a federal protection against surprise medical billing that would apply to everyone who has employer-based coverage as well as, you know, people who have individual coverage. And so it would piggyback on the protections that have been created and pioneered by these states, really holding patients out of the dispute when in, when they inadvertently see an out-of-network provider, they would be held harmless, they would be protected, and really the devil's in the details in terms of trying to figure out how much the uh, health plan would have to pay the out-of-network provider. Um, Hassan's bill would create a sort of New York-style baseball ar- arbitration method to determine what the you know reasonable out-of-network price should be for any given out-of-network service. Um, the other bipartisan bill would, would use something that is pegged to um, average allowable costs, a percentage of that, which many have argued is probably too high. Um, so again, the, 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 there's been a lot of consensus, actually, just a few days ago or yesterday, uh, a bi- you know, a sort of a broad coalition of America's health insurance plans, Consumers Union, and a whole bunch of other, uh, including ERIC, the ERISA um, industry group. There's been a, an agreement that surprise medical bills are something that need to be fixed and need to be fixed at the federal level in order to protect everyone. Um, But there is obviously going to be some disagreement when it comes to getting providers on board, when it comes to figuring out how much they're going to get paid in those out-of-network contexts. But I think in principle, we have a lot of bipartisan agreement that surprise medical bills should be fixed, um, that this is a problem that is an unintended consequence of our entirely too complex medical system. Uh, Consumers should not be left holding the bag in these situations, and the federal government really needs to step up and and do something about it. And so uh, that's why I would take Senator Hassan to, you know, to have a drink 
drink or to, to dinner to celebrate the, the fact that she's, you know, putting a bill out there that's getting a lot of attention um, and goes a long way to, to achieving the protections that, you know, we all would expect in, in our health care plans. Well, my secret Santa, and I think it's more on the secret Santa rather than Grim Re- Reaper end of the spectrum, although certainly some gray area, would be Judge Dan Polster. Um, as Nick mentioned earlier, um, this is the judge in the Northern District of Ohio who is in charge of the nationwide opioid multi-district litigation. And I, um, Nick, you, you on your naughty list included the um, opioid manufacturers for failing to settle these claims in the MDL. And I, I guess that's right. Although um, certainly Judge Polster's uh, intention and, and stated quite publicly from the very first meeting of counsel almost a year ago in January of 2018 was to move these cases forward towards settlement um, as expeditiously as possible. That Judge Polster sees himself in a position to get done what state and federal legislatures have not been able to do in responding to this crisis. Um, so that's admirable. Um, certainly there something needs to shake loose and um, to the extent a settlement would result in dollars flowing to local governments, not simply to state governments, but to local governments and to other um, plaintiffs in this um, litigation that have been affected by the opioid epidemic, that that is admirable. Um, the concern, though, I think, is with the process, and um, I'm I'm cribbing in some ways from my my colleague here at the University of Georgia, Beth Birch, who's working on a book on on MDL, and um, I think there's concern over that process of of um, achieving settlement of these cases through a procedure that that leapfrogs over the merits of the cases. I mean, an MDL is not a class action. It's not a process that's intended to reach or to um, to resolve the actual legal claims. It's really a pretrial consolidation process. And so to use that as a way to drive settlement um, comes with a, a variety of um, uh, pitfalls and challenges and, and controversy. So I guess I picked Judge Polster as my secret Santa because I like surprises. Um, And I will be very interested to see how he continues to steer this process and um, the potential good and um, potentially um, less good effects that it may have on the overall problem. And finally, my pick for Secret Santa is Andy Slavitt, Senior Advisor to the Bipartisan Policy Center, who went from uh, a position of uh, technocratic anonymity as CMS administrator to Twitter rock stardom. Uh, on Twitter, he provides a sort of a fulcrum for great information and policy criticism on a daily basis. He's also now running a venture capital firm with some fascinating healthcare technology goals. As he put it in a CNBC interview, quote, we need to stop investing in the third Fitbit for the 50-year-old upper-class person and start innovating for people who have common diseases and conditions but live in communities with low access to care. And I have a surprise last-minute nominee. Uh, In fact, it's uh, uh, something of an homage to my dear friend, Professor Leonard, who I know every year still wants to nominate this particular person. One part of the administration's uh, sabotage of the marketplace has been to make the federal exchange less visible, uh, cutting the navigators, 
uh, continuing to have weekend, quote, maintenance, unquote. And that has somewhat depressed signups this year. So my vote goes to President Obama. Uh, one tweet of his last week telling people to sign up apparently led to a huge spike in marketplace enrollments. And that was the Week in Health Law. Huge thank you to Professors Buck, Fuse Brown, and Leonard. Tell us what you have coming out. Tell us about your Twitter handles, anything you'd like people to know about as we as we part company. Yeah, Nick. Well, I have a piece uh, coming out in the Seton Hall Law Review on the U.S. versus a Sarah Care case. I've tried to hold publication as long as I could to try to wait for the 11th Circuit, which leads to my frustration and why it was on my naughty list. Uh, but it should hit uh, everyone's uh, bookshelves in the next couple of weeks. And this is Aaron. Uh, my Twitter handle is at Brown, and um, I have, I just published not too long ago a report with the Millbank Memorial Fund on a sort of a strangely named tool that states have to combat healthcare consolidation called Certificates of Public Advantage, and the way Tennessee and Virginia have used Certificate of Public Advantage uh, recently. So, that you know, you can look on the Millbank Memorial Fund website, they've published that report, and I will have a follow-up piece um, with a cautionary tale um, from North Carolina's experience with their Certificate of Public Advantage, which they repealed a couple of years ago, and bad things ensued. So that will be my teaser for everyone. And thanks for hosting this naughty or nice holiday show. And this is Elizabeth. I mentioned in the introduction, I have a book um, are out called Healthism, Health Status Discrimination and the Law. It's with Cambridge University Press and co-authored with Jessica Roberts of the University of Houston, who has been a guest on this show regarding our book. Um, I also, as mentioned in my comments, am working on opioids and specifically on a um, study of local government cost related to the opioid epidemic, both in support of the litigation, which uh, again, as I mentioned, um, city and county governments are some of the key plaintiffs in those cases. And so one of their challenges will be to demonstrate how they, in fact, are impacted on a, um, a financial basis by that epidemic. So the study, which um, at present has been conducted in three Georgia counties, and um, I just polished off a grant proposal today to expand the study into additional counties. Um, but the preliminary work will be published in the Kansas Law Review as part of their opioid symposium, um, which was held earlier this fall. And for those uh, law professors listening, I there's a second edition of my casebook that's um, ready for adoption for your spring courses. Um, so thanks, Nick, for hosting. It's always a pleasure. Well, thank you all. I'm continuing to work on Indiana University's uh, Grand Challenge on the addictions crisis here in Indiana. Uh, I've got a few pieces that are about to come out. One of them is in the Northeastern Law Review and is about uh, the healthcare system being a structural determinant in the context of the opioid crisis. I've got a fun piece, I think it's fun anyway, uh, about to come out in the NYU Intellectual Property Journal on what I think the Amazon healthcare system is going to look like. And then uh, going on from something that uh, Elizabeth was talking about a moment ago, uh, the opioid MDL litigation. I have a new piece that sh I'll be posting on SSRN sometime in the next week or so with my own critique of the Cleveland litigation uh, and the whole attempt to solve the opioid crisis through litigation and some of the implications for that. My Twitter handle is at Nicholas Terry. Uh, thank you for joining me and my spectacular guests. Have a legally interesting and very healthy holiday. Thank you.